Remember the good old 1980s When things were so uncomplicated I wish I could go back there again And everything could be the same This is Atis Oakley There's a direct parallel with this technique of making videos which we employ quite a lot now to the development of music. I don't think it's any coincidence that since we were become acquainted with Trevor Horn and his style and you know art of noise and, and the style of music which employs synclaviers and fairlights and all this synthesizer stuff where you, you are loading up the ammunition into a machine and then you are replaying it, you are sampling. It's not a fluke that we do a similar sort of thing film-wise. We're getting closer to a visual fairlight all the time. And then the edit, edit suite is the keyboard. When we create music and when we create pictures, the thought processes are identical. It's just that they're perceived with different organs of the body. It's, you know, the way we think about both things are, are the same. Welcome to Adizography and part one of a My Adizography Decade Review musician, songwriter, and music video director Kevin Godley. And it's for the latter, as a music video director, that we'll be focusing on with these two episodes. And as much as I love the music Kevin's been involved with, as uh, Godley and Cream, especially 10CC, the video career in the 80s of Godley and Cream, there are few directors in the 80s who were pushing the boundaries of music video as much as they were. And they've made some great videos. He's been involved with so much great music as a musician or, or as a director. I can think of many people who have been involved in more music in the 70s and 80s that I've loved than Kevin Godley. So it was a real pleasure to speak to him. Uh, I should explain that with the music video director interviews, I always do some audio commentaries. 
they talk through the track and cue up the video and listen to them talk about it. I did that with um, Jim Yukic and Daniel Clement. They're a couple of my favourite episodes because of it. Really fascinating. I'm not sure he understood uh, what the remit was. So, so basically, the first one we did was for girls on film, Duran Duran, and he basically uh, audio described the video, just, just said what was happening in the video, said it didn't quite work. So I put in little snippets, one of the kids will introduce it, uh, and later on there's one for Every Breath You Take, which has got more, more interesting stuff in it, so I've kept that one as an audio commentary. But anyway, so just listen out for that and them, and uh, here cometh, parteth, oneeth of my chat with Kevin Godley. Enjoy. Part one of the interview begins now. We've got a lot to cover, being in the 80s. So I want to start a little bit before. It'd be remiss of me not to ask you about 10cc, because I'm a huge 10cc fan. I actually got into the 10cc via Godly and Cream, actually, through those 80s singles, in the same way I got into the Beatles through McCartney. I was listening to Iceberg, actually, before you you, you joined the call. That's a yeah. song you wrote with um, Graham, yeah? Yes. It's a very, it's a very dark lyric. What was the inspiration? Did you write the lyric to that one? Well, it's a funny thing, you know. But in Ten CC, it was never that exclusive. It wasn't like an Elton John, Bernie Taupin thing. It was like we all just contributed what we could. It was, it was a mishmash of things. So I, I think I probably wrote the main part of the lyric. In fact, there was a part of the lyric that was removed because it was just too disgustingly dark. What was the inspiration for the lyric in the first place? Well, I think at the time we were doing the song, I mean, Graham and I didn't actually write that many songs for, for 10CC, but my I always felt that it was my duty when I sat down with Graham to try and make things darker, to push him in a darker direction. That seemed, that was my sort of driving uh, directive. So I came up with this, uh, this sort of jazz. I like that kind of music, that Lambert, Henriks and Ross uh, kind of jazz singing. So... I had this idea. But the part of the lyric, which I think was a spoken part that, that never made it, and it was probably a good thing, said something like, I want to get down on all fours and shit in your handbag. <laughs> I think, I think, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'd just like to see the look of shock on Graham's face. <laughs> So what was the inspiration for the lyric? I shouldn't go on about this too long because it's not about your music video career yet and it's not the 80s, but I'm just fascinated by this lyric. So what inspired the idea for the lyric in the first place? Um, I, don't, I don't know. It's a funny thing writing lyrics. It's a funny thing writing music, period, frankly. It's, you're, you're essentially sculpting air. All you're really doing when you're sat down opposite somebody and they're playing and you're reacting to what they're playing is you, you, you're trying to find a, find a way in a key, if you like, not not a musical key, but a key like a door key to unlock some kind of idea. And I, there was something in the word iceberg of, of, a, of somebody cold-hearted and very under the radar. I actually haven't got the, the lyric in front of me, but I remember, I remember it being almost a serial killer, a type of individual that we were singing about and, and his, his exploits and his thoughts, um, which wasn't exactly life is a ministroni. Um, <laughs> no, exactly. It's very much the anti-life as a minister, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit of a rapey like lyric. Zombie yeah. I, don't, you know, I don't know, but it, it just it just sort of headed off in in that direction, and we just sort of went with it, you know. Iceberg, 
I was an orphan and I couldn't help it. I've been in and out of trouble ever since I left me in a basket on the freeway. It's me that's been dogging me shadow. It's me that's been a shadow in the dark. You got me hung up, lock, stock, and barrel. I'll always be behind you in the park, so you better not deny me. Or I'll be something that I might regret. You better not deny me. Or I'll be something that you won't forget in a hurry, and I might be back for some sloppy seconds. Which album was that on? Was that was on the last one you made. How dare you? How dare you? Okay, yeah. so I think. My mood when we went into How Dare You was to push as hard as possible because I I was getting a little bored with the sort of hippie, happy, jolly, tongue-in-cheek lyrics that we've been doing. I think by the time, time we made that album, we, we knew what 10CC stood for. We knew musically what we were supposed to be. And that... That wasn't really how it was supposed to be for me. I didn't like that. I every album prior to that was um, was an adventure, not really knowing what we were aiming to achieve, but giving us a, an amount of time to record it and write it. What the albums were was what we had at the end of that period of time. So now we were kind of thinking, oh well, that's what NCC is, and we had meetings, pre-production meetings, to decide to a degree, what we should be writing. And that that rankled. Mm. So I was sort of sort of covertly pushing against that, I think. Yeah, I think you really pushed with that lyric. Um, so, yeah, I always listen to a lot of like non-UK listeners that might only know 10cc from I'm Not In Love and things we do for love to, to check out his first four albums because they're all fantastic. Because I think 10cc, the nearest the 70s, has the Beatles and that you were kind of pushing the boundaries of what a pop song could be while doing brilliantly accessible hit singles at the same time, which is a hard trick to pull off, to do those two things. Yeah, the, the chemistry of the band allowed us to do that, though, because I think it was the template, essentially, uh, and where we were recording and how the band came to be, because we weren't we weren't in London, which essentially was the centre of the music business, uh, and we were up north in Stockport, of all places, with our own studio, and so, you know, members of the record label, executives and so forth couldn't just sort of pop in to see what we were doing. Our first tracks were hits. So they felt, okay, these guys know what they're doing. And they left us to our own devices. And so we just followed ourselves. Um, and we went to some dark corners and we went to some shady spots and we went to all sorts of weird places that I don't believe we would have done had we have been in the centre of the music business. We were left alone pretty much in a similar way to the way the Beatles were. We, we kind of proved ourselves quite early, so they let us get on with it. Hang on one sec. I'm a clockwork leg. And though my fuse is burning slow, must keep my date to detonate. Goodbye to tar and cheerio. Okay, one more thing before we get into the 80s is, is your autobiography, Space Cake, because whenever yes. I've read an autobiography, I've always had the same thought. It was like, 
they'll talk about an event like a live gig or a TV show. And I'll, and I'll think, I want to like give you the link to the YouTube clip of it. That's exactly what your, it's an ebook, Space Cake. And it's exactly what that book does. It's, it's an absolutely brilliant, um, one of the best, most enjoyable autobiographies I've ever read. Oh, that's, so, thank you. That's very yeah. Funny. So, so was that a, a, a kind of exciting again, like like you do with Godly and Cream a lot? You kind of push boundaries and open kind of new ground. Is that the kind of the aim for doing the autobiography? It, well, somebody asked if I'd like to. I never even considered it. I didn't think I'd lived long enough to deserve doing an autobiography. Um, and I was asked if I'd be interested in doing one, and it was appealing. But I didn't want I didn't want to do it like a straightforward autobiography. So I, I, I think it was my wife, Sue, maybe, that came up with the idea of doing it like a script, like a screenplay. And then I thought, well, I need to question myself throughout this. So I gave myself an alter ego. And that was the shape of it. And I didn't want to write a kiss and tell book and, you know, all the things that went wrong book and, you know, about my drug addiction and my 15 suicide attempts and my self-harm and all that bullshit, which didn't really exist. So I didn't want to make it, you know, it wasn't going to be one of those books. Mm. You know, the thing that I do and the only thing of value that I bring, I think, is is the work. So, you know, I I just wanted to talk about that and how much fun it has been. And I said the bit with Chrissy Hine in the trapdoor made me laugh out loud uh, big time. (laughs) You remember that bit? Well, I threw the trap door here. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, that was pretty random. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, anyway, I recommend people check that book out. We should get to the eighties. Um, so obviously, when it comes to we're focused on your music video directing career because there's just too much to cover. Otherwise, um, I'd love to talk about Godly and Cream as well, but we'll yeah. focus on on the video side of Godly and Cream if that's okay. okay. Um, obviously, your first video, an Englishman in New York, you didn't direct. No, that kind no. of that kind of sets you on your way, didn't it? We we kind of got the credit for it though. It was, it was a weird a weird situation. Well, you've read about it, obviously. So it was a weird situation. We stuck our oar in all the way through the process, essentially, because a light bulb went off over our heads and said, "This is fucking brilliant. We can do this." Um, yes, we were led through it, but we learned enough in a couple of days to take it on, and we were quite instrumental in the edit of that. So I, I, we sort of co-directed it, but yeah, it kicked us off. It kicked us, it kicked us into a, into a new place. Um, and the amazing thing about it was, if you if you think about it, that when we became successful in music, we were essentially in something that had been going for for quite a while. This business of music, the pop music industry, the rock music industry, wasn't new. It'd be around, been around for 30 odd years. So we were just joining something with music video. Nobody knew what it was, including us. And we were in the beginning of this thing. So we had the opportunity to sort of guide it towards something in some ways. And, and that was, that made it doubly exciting. 1980. Right. So going into 1980 now. So there's Visage, Fade to Grey, and then there's Wide Boy by Godly and Cream. So was Fade to Grey the first video you actually made? Yes. Okay, so how did that come about? Uh, well, we knew Steve Strange, I guess. We were, we, you know, we, were, we, we went to clubs in those days, so the same as everybody else. And things were changing, you know, punk had, had sort of mutated into new wave and all sorts of different tribes 
were growing out of New Wave, and it was the very, very, very beginning of, of the New Romantics, I guess. And, and you know, Steve was, was one of the faces, a significant face in that movement, and, and we kind of knew him a little bit. And I guess what must have happened is he saw an Englishman in New York, heard the story, and because he knew us, he wanted us to direct his first video. Now, I think, I don't think the label, he was on Polydor as well as us, I think. And I don't think the label were agreeable to that, that immediately. The reason he wanted us was because we were musicians. We came from the world he lived in. Um, and I think that's significant in terms of why we were successful uh, as directors. We communicated with artists in the same way. You know, we could talk music with them, whereas other directors of the day didn't come from music at all. There were, you know, commercials directors or documentary directors or this, that, and the other directors, but none of them, exclusively, none of them were musicians. And so that, so it worked. You know, we, we understood what Steve was about, where he wanted the film to go to, what he wanted the film to say, the feeling of it. And we had a very small budget, I think it was about £5,000 or something, most of which went to the makeup artist. But I suppose the key thing was that the timing was good and the record was a hit. And that cemented, you know, who we were in this new world. So I can imagine that would be attractive to artists, the fact you are artists, but for the record company to think of pop stars directing pop stars, like the lunatics taking over the asylum, was there any kind of... You alluded to it there. Was there any kind of pushback yeah, or worry from the record companies? Like, oh, can we trust these guys to actually make videos? Yes, because it, yes, because they were hits. Had none of the tracks we did films for have been hits, we would have been slung out the door. But you know, it it, it was a weird time in a, in a sense. The lunatics were running the asylum again, but successfully. You know, the labels didn't really know what hit them with music video, I don't think. But with us, they found people who knew both sides of the coin. We knew the music and we we had a sense of what would be interesting for people to watch. I mean, this is before MTV existed, remember? So mm. I, I don't even know where our stuff appeared. But I know it started to appear in clubs, it was occasionally shown on top of the pops if the, if the band couldn't show up and sort of kids' programs on Saturday mornings and so forth. But I don't know, we just had a feel for it, a flair for it, naturally. And and thank goodness, most of the tracks that we did were hit records. So, we, you know, commercially, we proved our chops. Yeah, that, that flair is evident in, in Wide Boys. It's an incredibly kind of ambitious and clever video for what was yeah. just... That was right, your second video you made. Yeah. That's incredibly clever, and um, the way that like, the photos become the next shot, kind of thing, and you kind of you rip it up and you run through it. It's very clever. Like, how how do you go from having the idea of that to actually realizing it? It depends on the idea itself, but it's it's well, it's the same with any piece of film that involves a technique, which this did. We, I'm thinking back. I don't know how the hell we did it um, because. One didn't have a video tap in those days. You were working on film. And as far as I can recall, I think we shot it on video, though. I think I'll tell a lie. We shot it on video. 
And, and when we've shot a certain sequence, we freeze framed what we thought would be the beginning of the next shot and the actual still that people would jump through or drive through or whatever. And then we we drew around the screen using a using a china graph the actual shape of the image of both of us on the screen. And we then had that frame of film printed up huge or whatever size it should have been to accommodate the next live shot. And then we lined the camera up to the China graph drawing on the screen so that they matched as far as they possibly could. And then we rolled camera and jumped through it. So it was quite, it was quite detailed. And I, and I imagine the shoot went on, to, on for a few days. You know, we did maybe two or three shots a day and then had chose the relevant frames to, uh, to break into the next sequence and, and then we had to yes it was quite detailed in a nutshell but of course we didn't quite know if it would if it would work 100 until we actually did it yeah that's my that's point of my question really was like because you have this idea but then realizing it have you have you ever had ideas that sounded brilliant and when you actually did them you thought actually it doesn't really work yeah not many thank goodness can you think we, of any examples where you like yeah. Oh, I, I forget the, the name of the guy. We, we, did, we shot a video for a, an, an American artist. Um, I Forgive me, I've forgotten his, his name. But the idea was essentially to film him performing to camera. The camera was stationary. He'd be performing to camera. And we'd film him doing that performance in maybe 12 different locations. And then we'd cut between them, sort of one-frame cuts between them. And we thought it would look amazing, uh, which it kind of did, but there was nothing in it that was stationary at all. Everything was cutting, so you, there was nothing to concentrate on. That was that was the problem with it. I think the track was called Boys Town. The name of the artist may, may come to me during, during our chat, but it, it's not there at the moment. Rob, Rob Youngless? Jungless? Yes, Rob Youngless. Yeah, because that's that's a bit of a mind fuck watching that video. It's like I looked at YouTube comments saying it's like a seizure inducing video. <laughs> so okay, so what what we learned was that, and we deployed the same basic idea for a track uh, for Wang Chung called "Everyone Have Fun Tonight." It's the same idea exactly, although we shot it in a, in in one space. So even though the people in the frame are cutting all the time, you remain in that one space, and it looks as if we're in one space, and that worked really, really well. Right, it's just that little tweak just makes the difference. Well, you you learn some you learn something, and unfortunately, then we, there wasn't the money there to do a test. We were just going on instinct, and we were probably a little bit spoiled by then. I think by the time we got to do that, we shot it in LA, and it was like, hey, we're the big video directors. Mm -hmm. And we thought we knew everything, but we didn't, of course. You never do. And we should really have done a test, but I don't think the budget and the um, and, and the timing was wrong to do a test, the scheduling. So we just went for it, and we didn't quite make it work. 1981. Okay, so moving into 1981, by this stage, were you like musical artists that dabbled in video or did you see it more of like a 50-50 thing? 
Well, what was your attitude towards what you were doing at that time? Well, I think we were more enthusiastic about um, film, and I suppose it was it was partially because it tapped into a part of our creativity that had been lost. You know, we were art college students for for years before we were in a band, any band, and uh, so that was incredibly exciting. And we started having having ambitions about making a movie. We wanted to make a film. So that, I think, was uppermost in our mind. Well, obviously, we carried on making music because um, that was fun too. But our ambitions led more in, in, in the visual arts at that time. And yet in 81, you had two massive hit singles. Yes. And your thumb and wedding bells. So, like, your eye wasn't necessarily on the ball with the music, and yet you were having these massive hits. So first question is, why was there no video for Under Your Thumb? There wasn't time. I think, I think, I seem to remember, okay, we were filming a video for Toy Wilcox called Thunder in the Mountains. And I think Under, Under Your Thumb had just come out or something. And we were on this big sort of disused airfield and someone came running up to us and said that Under Your Thumb had just gone in the top 30 <laughs> while we were shooting somebody else's video. <laughs> I was like, whoa, who are we? <laughs> So, you know, we just we just recorded this song and the label put it out and we kind of forgot about it. Don't forget, we weren't a touring band or anything. We were just this sort of occasional duo and we put records out. Still with, you know, a little bit of kudos left over from the band. But, uh, but it, yes, it was, it was a hit. It sort of defied all expectations. And it's an incredibly visual song as well. So it, it would have, you can imagine... Wow. Do you ever think about what you would have done as a video, what your treatment would have been for it? Oh, Nothing literal, I don't think. But no. Yeah. You wouldn't have been on a train hearing a woman's voice or anything? No, that'd be terrible. That'd be awful. Um, <laughs> I hate literal videos. I have no idea. I never even thought about it. There's something mysterious. I, I honestly, I can't answer that question. But um, the, the one thing we were always troubled by when it came to doing film for ourselves we, we we weren't that comfortable with being in it ourselves well I was getting more comfortable with doing it but Lol was getting less comfortable with doing it so it was a bit of a problem for us I remember the, the first idea that we had for Cry was to get Torville and Dean to skate to it but that didn't happen because we couldn't get our diaries in sync so the faces idea was, was plan B and so on and so forth, particularly wedding bells. That was a nightmare. <laughs> Why? Well, Law came up with the idea. He said, well, the, the record sounded like, you know, kind of smoking Robinson and the, and the musicals, you know, it was that kind of a, a treatment. So Law said, well, you know, we should do it like, you know, The Temptations with dance moves. Dance moves. And as soon as he said it, his face fell. <laughs> Because he saw mine light up, and it was like, yeah, that'd be fucking great. And he, you know, he suddenly saw himself in a shiny suit and thought, no fucking way. <laughs> but it had to be, so um, because it was the right idea, he just didn't feel comfortable doing it. Um, but we did it. <laughs> and again, it was miraculously, it was it was a hit record. It's a fantastic record. I thought all those three hits are brilliant. The, the choreography for a Wedding Bells, how long did that take to do? <laughs> Probably a couple of days or so. It was hysterical. It was hysterical. There was lots of, no, I can't do this. Yes, you fucking can. <laughs> <laughs> Just look cool. 
just just relax into it. Like, okay, okay, I can't do it. I don't want to. There's a lot of that going on. But, you know, you don't see that in the finished film particularly. I was really getting off on it. I was really, I was really enjoying it. I was really sad that the Temptations didn't approach us to join. Us. <laughs> so, did you work out the moves yourselves, or was it like, did you get somebody into no, like the guys that were dancing with us? One of them was a choreographer, as far as I recall. Ah, uh, handy. Okay. So you mentioned the toy. There's a couple of toy videos you did in '81, and also status quo. Something about you, baby, I like. <laughs> yes. How how do you get how I can't imagine Goblin Cream and Status Quo kind of paths kind of crossing in in normal circumstances? Was that did, at this point were people coming to you, or were you just 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 seeking you know any any potential to like make videos? People came to us. I mean, I, I, we were represented by a company, um, as far as I remember, and you know the company goes out pitching on your behalf, but we were. You know, we knew some of the people. I knew I knew the people from Status Quo. I knew Rick from Status Quo. So we kind of knew some of the people. So they would sometimes approach us directly as opposed to going through the normal channels. You know, they would say, do you fancy doing this video? We'd say, yeah, let's have a listen. A much more casual way of going about things, which was very nice. Does it help liking the song? Or does it not make a difference? Oh, no, it, yeah, of course it does. Because you don't, if, if you think about it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to do it if you don't like the song particularly, because the song is a starting point for you to come up with something exciting that you would like to see. At least that's how we thought about it. And if you love the song, it's, it's so much better. But regardless of whether the song is good or bad, you are going to be singing it and listening to it days on end while you're editing it so I'm driving other people crazy because you get home and you're singing it and you go to sleep and you're singing it it's doing mm-hmm. a death around your head for weeks and you don't want to be singing something really twee on the bus do you or on, or on the train it's, it's that can get you killed or lynched we pretty much went for songs that we liked what song drove you the most mad hearing it over and over again is there one that like even, even if you hear it now, you get flashbacks. It's like, oh, you have to turn the radio off because you can't stand hearing it again. Yeah. You find yourself singing it. You, you, you connect, regardless of the quality of it, you, you, you have to connect with it 100%. A, when, you've, when you're listening to it to come up with the idea. B, when you're shooting it. And C, when you're editing it. So it's like it's there. It's, it's uppermost in your thoughts for maybe two weeks. And then you can't get rid of it even when you're on to the next one. So it's it's it can be very annoying, but it's it's just part of the process. Duran Duran goes on film bits. Yeah, and it's a close-up of the band Simon, and our first model walks out in a, in a vaguely Asian costume. And a sumo wrestler jumps into frame. Why the sumo wrestlers? What was the idea behind that? I don't know. Just thought it looked good. So I think you made two versions of this video then. It wasn't like you made your version and they edited a clean version out of it. Did you do both versions? Yes, that's right. We did. But she's spraying stuff suggestively on his back and massaging him. Yes, and and that's it. Bloody hell. There's a lot more going on than that. (laughs) (laughs) And now there is a guy wearing a sort of horse costume 
with the original girl riding in dressed as a cowgirl with lots of freeze frames and then more shots of the band. Now it's getting really boring. And then they're all dancing together and that was utterly pointless because all the good bits have all been swept under the carpet or should we say on the cutting room floor because they were far too uh, naughty to be seen. So where exactly were they seen then? Because they wouldn't well, show them on TV. Every time a girl came out, okay, it's about to end now, every time a girl came out and started a sequence, it developed uh, into something much raunchier than we're actually seeing in this version. There were breasts, they were sliding on uh, a pole, they were doing all sorts of disgusting things. Um, although they weren't particularly disgusting, particularly disgusting. It was very soft porn. Um, but for 1981, that would have been very shocking at the time. On television, it would, but originally, it was the film was designed to be shown in clubs. It was originally shot and edited for that reason. It was just made tame for television. 1982. Okay, let's go into 1982. There's a couple of videos for Asia. There's a couple of videos for Joan Armour trading. There's a Graham Parker video. Any particular memories from those? Anything that jumps Graham out at you? Was that, was that ice featured in the Graham Parker video? Yes. Yes, I remember that. I remember Joan Armour trading to a degree. Uh, not particularly well. These were early days. I remember the Asia video where we had some kind of a gymnast on the optical dreams. I remember there was one strange thing in, in the Asia video, which was a, not exactly a disaster, but we, I don't think we had anybody in charge of continuity. So John Wetton showed up on the set looking unshaven in the morning. And so we, shot, we started to shoot, and he looked great, actually, unshaven. Then we broke for lunch, and he had a shave. <laughs> and, and then we, saw, we had to... We had to get all the, the hair out of the shaver and stick it back on. <laughs> it was a nightmare. A nightmare. Why would you shave in the middle of the day? I don't know. What's wrong with people? If you looked in the mirror and thought, oh, I look shit, I'll have a shave. Uh, and also in 82, you did um, a short film for Ringo Starr, The Cooler. Yes. Which is basically three promos kind of put together and the short film made around it. Yes. How did, how did that come about? We were in LA doing something else. I forget, it may well have been Rob Youngless. I'm not sure. Uh, but we got a call from Paul, I think it was, asking if we'd be interested in, in doing this, this three-parter. And uh, we thought about it for five seconds and said, yes, of course we would. It's a funny piece. It's, it's shot on video in a studio. And we had a great time doing it. It just doesn't look that good looking at it now because mm. um, it was shot on video but we had a great time doing it and it sort of introduced us into introduced us to that group of people uh, which, which was great I mean we knew Paul from back in 10cc days but, um, but doing this was great I mean Ringo is, a, is an extraordinary champ he can do so many things and he was totally up for this you know the further we pushed him, the more he enjoyed it, I think. It was great fun. It was great fun. I, I, it, didn't, it doesn't really stand the test of time visually, I don't think. It's not a typical kind of Godly and Cream video. It's not. 
it well, is what like, yeah. is typical Godly and Korean video? I don't know. I think there's a more kind of there's a visual kind of flair to it, or is it an ideas kind of flair to it? It's just quite a conventional kind of video for I think Godly and Cream, especially at that story, time. It was a storytelling video, yeah, wasn't it? yeah. Which is something we've always shied away from, both the two of us and my solo work. I don't like doing stories. I don't like, to, you know, what do they call it, show and tell. It makes no sense to me. But I guess if you were looking to get into doing a film, this is the perfect opportunity to, to do more than just a four-minute music video, yeah? Just to stretch the band. Yeah, it gave us a little bit of that experience. And it, it, yes, it pushed us a little bit, pushed us a little bit further along the ladder. Um, but it's a funny thing about music video. It's not, I mean, lots of directors saw music videos as being like little movies. Well, they did kind of westerns or film noir or versions. We never saw it like that. It's, it's a movie, it's like a painting. Um, we always saw music videos as like little postage stamps. They're not anything like movies they're not it's supposed to be stood by that they're something completely different they are visual expressions of a piece of sound and the root of it is the sound it's it's not it's not a film with sound added it's sound with pictures added so and that's a whole different perspective it's a different way of looking at it um so you know telling the story you know i woke up this morning uh breakfast I met my girlfriend at the shops, we went back to her place, we went to a movie, we kissed, we made up, we fell out, we fell out. You don't want to see that while they're saying it because you want to imagine what that might be like for you. Mm. That's you know, it's it's that's what doesn't make sense about that kind of video to me. A narrative video never really works for me. You know, I don't want to see who who this artist is snogging or shagging to relate to that piece of music with some pictures that aren't that obvious 1983 okay so moving to 83 very much non-narrative you've got rocket herbie hancock which obviously was a, a massive video actually 83 is a massive year there's so many big videos for you like rocket um of course all the police ones as well you got elton john Forbidden Colours, I've not ever seen that video. That's a really good video. Um, where you have the, the shots from the film kind of merge into David Sylvian. Yes. That's, a, that's really clever. You made an album this year as well. Um, how how are you find the time? There's a lot of videos here. So how do you find the time to get it all done? I mean, how long would each video roughly take? Well, to answer your first question, how long how do we find the time? We were young, enthusiastic, and smoked a lot of dope. Yeah. Um, doesn't that slow you down normally? Doesn't that like... No. Well, it didn't for us. I mean, we, yeah. we probably would now. But back then, it, it created a very creative environment. It did what it was supposed to do. It opened us up. It shut out the real world and opened that part of your brain that allows stuff to come through. And it didn't stop. <laughs> um, so... We were very full on in the, in those days and sort of just jumping between different mediums didn't really make that much difference. If you, if you think about it, it's it's all the same stuff, or at least it was to us, you know, thinking of things you want to do 
be they in pictures or in sound, it's all the same stuff in a way. It's just we were lucky enough in that we could turn on different taps to let it come out in different ways. We just did it. We 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 didn't have any sense of our own mortality or or insecurity about whether we were able to do it or not. We just we just we proved to ourselves that we could do it and we could do both and we could do them both well. And so we just we knew when we had something that was a good idea, be it in sound or be it in pictures. And if we had something to apply the pictures to, in most cases, we just were lucky enough to be able to go ahead and make it. And in probably 90% of the time, they turned out well, and they continued to turn out well. I've got to ask you about Feel the Love 10cc, because that's such a unique situation where two ex-members of a band direct to existing members of a band in a pop video. Did they come to you for that? Say, do you want to direct us? How did that come about? And what was was that situation like? Oh, God, it was weird. It was weird, but it was a few years after we'd broken up, obviously. Got to be about, you know, sort of seven, eight years after the breakup. They they were doing quite well. We were doing quite well. So, you know, there there was no competitiveness between us. I think, you know, they, I don't really think they got the music video vibe at all. They did some, I hate to say it, chaps, they did some pretty awful videos. <laughs> Good morning, Judge, being the worst. <laughs> Never, ever have a band act in a video. That's, that's, that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> so, yes, they asked us to do it, I believe, and, and we came up with something that, again... I suppose it was like Herbie Hancock in in a way, in that they weren't featured front of screen. They were part of the situation. And the main idea was there was a tennis game being played. Two people were playing tennis. Yeah, Leslie Ash being one of them. Yes, John Prue, the the photographer, being the other good mate of mine. And they were both great. And that was the vibe. The band was just sat behind some glass with a whole other bunch of people watching the tennis. Very kind of stiff and very unemotional. And they just sang the song, um, wearing clothes that they probably wouldn't have chosen had they been left to their own devices. But but you're right, it was, it was a unique situation, but it, it, it worked out really well and we enjoyed it. We had a good laugh and uh, the finished product was good. Did you spend any time together afterwards with ever any discussion? I mean, just generally speaking, were there ever any discussions about the four of you ever doing I anything remember, seriously? I we, we all went to, there was, a, there was a great club in London called the Zanzibar at the time, and we all ended up at the Zanzibar. And um, I remember, I think it was this night, I'd always been, whenever anybody mentioned milkshakes, I was always joking that someone should try a garlic milkshake. And somebody ordered me a garlic milkshake, which was the most disgusting thing. <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. No, it was it was all very it was all very friendly and, and very nice and everything and the finished product was, was good. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a fun memory. There's never any moving off the 80s music videos uh, you never came close to the four of you I know you contributed to Meanwhile in 92 yeah. you did a vocal on the Stars Didn't Show which is a fantastic song and a fantastic vocal I do love that song but yeah. there's never any time after 76 when the four of you ever came close to making 
a proper album together or doing a, a live gig together or anything like that? Well, I performed with Graham a couple of times. Mm. Um, but no, there's never been... You mean putting the band back together? That yeah, at any point in the 80s or 90s or anything like that? No, because we were too different. We, we, we all had different lives and different, you know, different priorities. And, and there were, you know, there were a number of times where people suggested that we get back together, but I, why? I, I never really saw it. It's, it would become an instant sort of... It's, the idea of it is anathema to me. It's like, what what could we possibly bring bring to that equation that we haven't already done? What could we... Why 10CC worked was because there were four individuals that were still growing and looking for places to put their thoughts and their works and that provided the laboratory for doing so. 10CC was a petri dish. Now we're all grown up and we know who we are, we know what we can do, we're always looking for other things to do, but we know our limitations and we know each other's limitations and each other's tastes and they don't match anymore. It would not make any sense. Yeah, it's kind of the heart ruling the head, really, isn't it? Because it's just for, for emotional reasons, fans like the idea. Same with the Beatles. It's like they don't grow in each other. There's no reason those four people to be together in, in 1970. I mean, you know, the Beatles didn't come together for you. <laughs> they mm. came together for whatever reason, because they wanted to and it worked. The band's not going to get together for you. Uh, unless, of course, they're offered a vast amount of wealth to do so but even then in our case I'm not sure that that would do the trick it's 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 like I can't think, think of anything about it that is that attractive you never like thought I, I stopped talking about 10 CC it's not 80s but I just it's, it's kind of yeah I feel like I want to but there's never any like I just think oh, what kind of songs would you write now in the 80s with because all four of you wrote in different combinations every possible combination of two people you did in the band. So do you yeah. ever wonder, like, what? I know you wrote songs with Graham Goldman later, yeah. but just to think, oh, what would we write as 10CC now? There was never any kind of, what would an album from 10CC in 1988 be like? There was never any of that kind of thought process in your head. No idea. You, well, no. <laughs> you, are you asking me what, if we did record together now, what would it be like? What songs would it be like? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying, did you ever have that thought in your head? I wonder what it'd be like if we, like, 10 CC got together, the four of us, four individual songwriters got together, what kind of music we would make now? Because that's what fans think, yeah? Did you, as as members of the band and songwriters, ever have that kind of thought process in your head? Not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. <laughs> that's I don't, the no, I don't, I don't think so. I'm thinking no. about now, if we would get together to I don't know because I don't know I haven't heard anything I mean I've heard some stuff that Graham's done I haven't heard anything that Eric's done for a long time or or, or lol I've you know I, I have a solo album out so I don't know what where their heads are at I'm the one thing that keeps me doing it very occasionally is, and the only reason I do it, is if I think I've got something to say that, that is valid for today. I, I don't just do it, you know, to repeat myself. So I don't know how that would play with everybody else. I, I don't know why they do it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair enough. Uh, two more things for 83. So um, 
Save a Mountain for Me, uh, Godling Cream video. Uh, I like in the book where you you um, you were hitting the head with a what was it? It was yeah. thrown. Yeah, hammer. A hammer, because and then you watch the video, and that, that's the shot that's in the video, isn't it? It is. I'm actually hit on the head with the handle of the hammer. Um, there's a picture of you in the book, like having come out of the hospital with the uh, the thing on your head. Yeah, I got some very funny looks and some very funny questions when they took me in hospital. They thought it was a real, I was a real convict. Because you're dressed as a prisoner, yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. But that was that was fun. I guess that was the only thing that we did that had a narrative, but. The song itself had that flavour about it. It was um, it was a really nice song, actually, and it definitely had that vibe about it. So we, we kind of gave into it, and I thought we we did it quite well. Lol was magnificent as this little jerk, which which took me really back to the first time we ever met. Strangely enough, that wasn't in prison, was it? That was, first time I met Lol Cream, it was because somebody suggested he would make a very good. Igor the Hunchback in the film of Dracula I was like oh, <laughs> aged about 14 or something and he was doing exactly this performance this little gimp wandering in jail um, I think that wasn't definitely wasn't the last piece we did together I think I think Cry was after that okay and there's a little matter of the three videos I made with the police would you uh, be keen to do are you happy to do an audio commentary for one I'll let you choose which one which one? Yeah, because I, I assume you might be a bit sick of talking about every breath you take because you've probably talked about it so much over the last 40-odd years, but it's your choice. Whichever one you have the most to talk about, really. Well, let me see. There was... Uh, Synchronicity 2, Wrapped Around Your Finger and Every Breath You Take. Wrapped Around Your Finger is interesting, although it's I would be saying the same thing all the way through it. Yes. So... Basically, for Wrapped Around Your Finger, you had a sped-up tape of the song, which they performed to, which was then slowed down. So I'll, there's a, a YouTube video where somebody's done it. So do you remember? Is this how it would have sounded? It would sound... Yeah, exactly. It would have sounded because there was no technology back in those days to change the key back down to the right key. It would have sounded like Mickey Mouse. So, did they ever stop and say, this is ridiculous, I'm not doing this, I refuse to like... They, they totally, they trusted us tools. It was one where we did do a little test, I believe, before we, um, because there was a lot riding on it. The only thing that, that stumped us a little bit is back then, there was no, I think they call it symptom code, whereby the sound locks to the picture. That didn't exist. So, we could only use footage that lasted a certain amount of time before it lost sync. Um, but the, the, the idea worked extremely well. They were performing at double speed to a double speed track, and we were shooting at 50 frames per second. So when we got the film back, it was slowed down, and the sound was slowed down to the right speed. That was the theory, and it worked incredibly well. It was it was the polar opposite to the shoot, which was frantic, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we were pissing ourselves laughing for the entire day. But the final result was incredibly graceful, <laughs> which is extraordinary. 
Stuart Copeland must have been knackered playing the drums that fast for so long. Oh, they were all knackered. I think probably Andy was the one who got away with it the most. Because Sting was running around like a maniac, and, and uh, Stuart was hammering away like a double maniac, uh, and we were running around all over the shop. But yeah, it was it was beautiful. It was it just we were using the A and M stage. We shot it, which was Charlie Chaplin's stage. I think we also shot um, Every Breath there. So it was it was just it was a really good period because I suppose in comparison to sound. This was our original soundtrack period where we almost knew everything we needed to know. Ooh. That we were still daring enough to try stuff that other people wouldn't. Yeah, it does feel like because you, you, you're doing one great video after another at this point now, like you're really kind of rolling with it now. Yeah, we are. We are. Yeah. The Police Every Breath You Take audio commentary. Okay, three, two, one, and play. Okay. So the opening shot was a camera tracking down to the ashtray and it took hours to do. And we should have done it as a zoom because there's no perspective in it. It was a complete waste of time. Um, and there's Stuart playing. And the idea for this song came from um, old black and white films on music jukeboxes in the 50s and 60s in America, where you could play films, mostly jazz films, on jukeboxes, film jukeboxes. It was taken from that idea, sort of jazz films. And everybody looks amazing. And it was very heavily storyboarded, as I recall. Now looking at a close-up of Sting, the light will change, and the string players will appear. There's a funny story about the string players in that prior to shooting, we had stand-ins um, so we could get a good look at the people we have going to be working with via through the camera. And uh, it was just three stand-ins wearing blonde wigs. And for some reason, those wigs were left in the uh, the black guys' dressing rooms, and they didn't know why they were there, and they came out wearing them <laughs> to be shot for their parts, and looking very sort of slightly pissed off, and uh, <laughs> it was a very sort of tricky moment for a minute. And now I'm looking at a shot of Sting with four corners of the frame with different elements of instrumental things going on. We're moving up in slow mo to a chandelier and then into a guy wiping a window on the outside of the set very cleverly because there's no glass in there. <laughs> and window cleans cradle and the sting will now, whoa, come into shot. They're all compositions, all separate still compositions more or less, featuring each member of the band looking as, as good as they can and performing at the height of their powers, really, with such a great song. Uh, it's one of those songs that people play at their weddings, but if they're listening to the lyrics closely... Yeah, it's a weird song, isn't it? Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, how much do the lyrics mean? Yeah. And listen, they would not play at their weddings because it would be insulting them to their other half. Um, I'm going to stalk you when we split up, is basically what they're going to be saying, yeah. Yeah, I'll be watching you. You just, you know, you just be careful. But it looks great. It, it's, it's amazing. 
it's it's and, and it's it works because it is so unlike anything else that was being made in video at the time. It's a very slow and deliberate film with shots that last longer than two seconds. Everything was very cutty at the time. And this is the, the polar opposite. We're now dropping down from the chandelier and moving in. And we're going to be going past Sting, playing the upright bass, and to a close-up of the window cleaner. And then through to Stuart's snare drum, which mixes through to the ashtray, and up we go, and I think we fade to black. After long, puts the cigarette out. So was that Lol at the end that puts the cigarette out? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So was there any um, hesitance to using black and white at this time, or was it seen like you can do whatever you want, doesn't matter? Well, the black and white thing was, was it was interesting because... I remember we went to a meeting with the band and the label um, to talk through ideas and influences and stuff. And they'd been thinking along similar lines, strangely. They'd been thinking black and white. And the films that we'd been looking at, these jukebox films, they were all in black and white. And, and black and white hadn't really been used a great deal, if at all, in music video because everybody was so into brightness and colour and, and being flashy. And we wanted to, and when I say we, I meant all of us as a, as a group of people, wanted to take this in a completely different direction. Just concentrate on the basics, but make them look as beautiful as possible. And so we ended up with black and white and a bit of smoke, cigarettes on the end of guitars, and that whole noir atmosphere. Mm. And the DP, uh, Danny Pearl, that we were persuaded to use, we weren't 100% sure about him because the only thing we knew about him uh, prior to this was he shot the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A visual masterpiece, yeah. Yeah, and we thought, hang on a minute, it's not really working yeah, out. Very lo fi, yeah. <laughs> but he was, you know, he was brilliant. He's a, a, a lovely guy and a, a terrific director of photography. I think we may have won something for the photography in this in this piece. And that show yeah. a range, doesn't it? If you can do Texas Chainsaw Massacre on one end and then something as, as beautiful as very <laughs> yeah. breathy take on the other, then you've you covered the bases really, haven't you? Yeah. I don't remember him suggesting anybody rush in and do something nasty to any other band at some point, but I imagine we were potentially expecting that. Well, I th I, yeah, with Stuart Copeland and Sting, I wouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. Those three videos that all the band had kept very much apart, even when they're in the same shot. Was that something that stressed to you? We don't want any, like, really close shots of the three of them together because they weren't getting on very well? Or was that just how it worked out? Well, it just wasn't designed that way. We, I don't think we were particularly aware of the internal politics of the band at that time, nor were we particularly interested. We just... We just had an idea that we all agreed that we all agreed was was going to work, and we just went for it. And that being being very professional helped us get there. So obviously, everybody take was a massive hit. It, it was. Is there a gold disc equivalent for music video directors? Is there a what? Like a gold disc equivalent for music video directors? So you do a, a, a video for a million selling record. Do you get some kind of disc? In the same way a producer would for the record. I I'm not sure. I don't remember getting one. I remember getting a gold record 
occasionally. In other words, the same as the artist might get because mm-hmm. we we contributed to it. And recently, I found out that um, Sting let me know that that this particular music video had been played a billion times on YouTube. Billion. A billion. Wow. So you're not on a percentage for that, then? I well, a billion's a big number, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I'd never even thought about it. That's, that's insane, isn't it? Yeah. It was one of those pieces that, that worked better than we hoped it would, and I think that was down to the band more than anything else. They just they were a great band, let's face it, and they looked great as mm. well as sounded great. So we couldn't have wished for anything better. Some of the black and white makes you think about are there any eighties videos that predate every breath you take? with black and white because there's loads that followed it became a thing it's like August of Summer and obviously Cry as well but can you think of any that predated 83 that were black and white the only one I can remember that off the top of my head was Vienna oh yeah of course yeah a couple of the other yeah. but I don't know when that was that was 81 yeah so yes so that probably was one of the earlier ones but then I, the one thing I didn't like about it, that, that one, it was like it had a really great mood about it. And then at the end, there was a sequence where they were all laughing and taking the piss out of it. It was like, oh, you've killed it. Yeah. <laughs> I like, you remember that? I, it was really strange. It was like the, the confidence to take it the whole way was not there. Didn't um, commit to the premise, yeah? Yeah, quite. Although, you know, that's fair enough. It's valid. But I, no, I think the big difference, other than every breath you take being in black and white, was the pace of it was so different mm. to at that time. God lose goods. So, um, what is your favourite film of the eighties? Hang on, I've written down somewhere. So okay. Favourite movie was Scarface. Oh, okay. Why? Just sheer balls of. Uh, Pacino's performance, it's just, he's just unstoppable in that. Let's get this straight now. I never fucked anybody over in my life, didn't have a comment. You got that? All I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I don't break them for no one. Do you understand? He's just fantastic. And you can, you, you, even though he's playing a, a bad guy, you really associate with that bad guy. You, you can understand how that bad guy came to be. And you, you can really sympathise. It's a great movie. I mean, there are loads of good movies from that period of time, but that one stands out, along with uh, Rain Man, as a matter of fact. Okay. Interesting choice. Why Rain Man? Just it keeps you guessing till near the very end. That's really, and again, the performances are extraordinary, and they don't turn out to be what you thought was was really going on. It kept its its secrets for a long time. Did you fart, Ray? Fart. Did you fucking fart? Fart. How can you stand that? I don't mind it. Favorite TV series of the eighties? Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues. I never got into Hill Street Blues, strangely enough. What was it you liked about Hell Street Blues? It was the it was the first series that that felt real, um, and it was as gritty as it was funny uh, and witty. It was just very cleverly assembled. Well, for me anyway, I totally got into it. It seemed like a whole different 
type of entertainment. It was the beginning of lots of different series that would come years after it. They were much more daring. Um, you know, it would it would lead to things like Breaking Bad. Um, but, and that, for me, was the start of that, that period. I'm going to say something about the way I turned out. When I say, let's do it to them before they do it to us, I'm saying, let's be a good cop out there. Let's do our job before the bad guys do theirs, because it's damn sure they're going to be doing theirs. I never meant abridge a citizen's rights. I never meant go trigger happy, anything else. I'm 27 years with the force with great pride in one discharge of a weapon, and that was in the air, thank God. Anyway, have a good ship, and with the aforementioned in mind, let's do it to them before they do it to us. Favorite book of the ages? Bonfire of the Vanities. Okay, yes. And did you ever see the film? Yeah, it wasn't as good as the book. No. So what is it you like about Bonfire of the Vanities? What, what appealed to you? It's engrossing. It was one of those amazing books that you just, the best books are the ones you can't put down. That was one that I couldn't put down. If you weren't making $250,000 a year within your first five years on Wall Street, then you were either grossly stupid or grossly lazy. That was the word. By age 30, $500,000. And that sum had the taint of the mediocre. By 40, you were either making a million a year or you were timid and incompetent. Make it now! That motto burned in every heart like myocarditis. Boys on Wall Street. Mere boys with smooth jawlines and clean arteries. Boys still able to blush were buying $3 million apart on Park and Fifth. Why wait? Favorite album of the 80s? Uh, Remain in Light by Talking Heads. That's right, the beginning of the decade. What was it about that that uh, stood out for you? It was a new kind of modernity. It felt so much as a band. Is they made, and it's a strange thing to say, they made straight-looking people a bit scary. <laughs> I think I address that in the book, don't I? My, my theories about what's dangerous and what isn't. Originally mm. you know, in rock and roll, what was dangerous was long hair and you know looking like a freak. But there was a point where that shifted, and I think this roundabout talking heads and David Byrne was kind of it was the pivot, perhaps, of that change. His latest show. Was it American Utopia? It was extraordinary. Did you ever come close to doing a video for them? Did you ever, like, if you've got an artist you love, did you ever pitch to them directly and say, Never. We were never asked to do a video for them. They had their own sort of bunch of people that they relied on, probably New York, New York style people. So we weren't their cup of tea, apparently. All oh, right, okay. Their videos were pretty good, to be fair, weren't they? Oh, amazing. Favourite live event attended in the 80s? Uh, live Aid. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can't bet that. So were you backstage? Yeah. I also did Fashion Aid, but I filmed that. But that, I'm not, that's not a music gig. But Live Aid was definitely the, the live gig of the decade. You couldn't, it was impossible to top that. Uh, yeah, we were, we were sort of backstage-ish. 
So what what were you there? Did you have a professional role to do at Live Aid, or were you just there? We were there with Bob and Paul, the Bob and Paula. And who do you do you enjoy watching the most on stage? Who did we enjoy watching the most on stage? Bloody hell, that's a hell of a question. Everybody rose to the occasion, you know. So I I don't think of that gig as a series of separate little ones. I just think of the whole thing because it was wrapped up in the cause. So I can't pick any any one band out as being particularly amazing. I mean, you know, there are some that have featured more than others on YouTube, like Queen's featured a lot, U2's mm-hmm. featured a lot. It was an extraordinary thing to witness. That would have been a good good time for 10CC to get back together, wouldn't it? Do three or four songs? That would have been a perfect occasion. Shut up. Not 10CC getting back together. <laughs> Do you think? Like, come on, 85? That would been fantastic. I'm not in love. and it would have been terrible. What year was it? 85, yeah. Way too late. Way too late. We would, we were... Right about that time, I think we were sort of guilty pleasures. Video you wish you had made? Oh, Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel. Ah, oh, that's going to just come up. Yeah. Is that one of the ones when you saw it, you thought, oh, we should have done that? Well, various people thought we had, which is really annoying. I wish we had. So that's part one. Thanks to Kevin for a great chat. I love how he describes songwriting as sculpting air. Such a, such a great image. And such a great career. Please do check out those first four 10cc albums if you haven't before. Uh, 10cc sheet music, the original soundtrack, and how dare you. It's as good as pop music gets. Uh, more to come in part two. Some massive and brilliant videos discussed. And as mentioned in the interview, you should definitely check out Kevin's autobiography, Space Cake. It's an ebook with lots of pics. Like they show the um, the rig, how they did the rig for uh, U2, even better than the real thing video. And there's lots of other pictures and diagrams and clips. Uh, it's hugely enjoyable and really well written. There's even a passage written by his wife that's also really well written. So you can find that wherever you locate ebooks or check out Kevin's website, which is kevin-godley.com, lowercase. No one says www. anymore when they mention websites, do they? I always remember Stephen Fry doing a talk and explaining how when people use the abbreviation www dot it actually uses twice the silly bubbles of just saying the whole thing World Wide Web dot it's quite interesting uh, anyway to end 10cc reformed in the early 90s alas not as a four piece just Graham Goldman and Eric Stewart effectively 5cc but I logged in some backing vocals and tracks and Kevin sung one song and it's a lovely song called The Stars Didn't Show with a great vocal from Kevin so let's play out with this and meet again soon. Bye, see, bye. We came from miles around just to listen to your sound. You made the night seem endless. You cast a magic spell.
in the round hole. I do not belong here, baby. Just a loud in conversation. Mean the pennies dropping. It's my clumsy way of saying that we should be stopping. Happy to see you. Have a nice day.